1978, and Tony Wilson is the mayor of a city not yet built. The foundations are being laid for a new revolution, a punk one shaking off the soot of industry. Journalist Frank Owen had a front row seat for that formative period of Manchester's history. And 35 years after leaving, he's back amongst the high-rise flats and coffee shops. And he's been writing about how it's changed again. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Hello there, welcome to this weekend edition of the Manchester Weekly from The Mill with me, Daryl Morris, and The Mill's editor, Yoshi Herman. Hello, Yoshi. Hi. Really interesting guest today, somebody who can take us into... Somebody's actually got just a very unique perspective of an old Manchester and a new one. Yeah, it's almost like if you were designing a sort of experiment where someone would only experience the old Manchester in the 70s and early 80s. And then they would they would come back, you know, 35 years later and experience this different one, having lived in America for most of that time. And for that person to be a very good writer and, and, and interesting journalist is kind of perfect. Yeah. So he's produced two great stories for The Mail in recent months, very, very popular, both of them. And today he can give us a bit more detail. Frank, welcome to the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You have seen Manchester at two very different points of history, haven't you, Frank? Could you give us a bit of a bit of a potted history of your time from leaving in 1980 to London to New York and then returning 35 years later? I left Manchester in 1980 to go to university. Spent four years at Kiel University doing American studies. Always wanted to move to America ever since I was a teenager. Then I did an MA in Cultural Studies at the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies. Then I moved to London to do a PhD at the Royal College of Art in Cultural History. Started uh, writing for Bellage Maker on the side, which became a full-time job. Started writing about the early days of house music and hip-hop. Was spending most of my time in those days... Um, record companies were rich. This is when uh, the switch over from from LPs to CDs, everybody was replacing the vinyl with CDs. So record companies were washing money. So they would send you to America all the time, give you drugs <laughs> and put you off in five-star hotels. So I was spending most of my time in America in 85, 86, 87. In 86, I met my soon-to-be wife at this legendary dance club called the Paradise Garage, fell in love, and then moved to New York in October 1987 to get married, essentially. Um, then I became a music editor at Spin Magazine. What, what I'd really like to ask about is, you know, when you first got in touch with me, Frank, you had said you had just returned um, to Manchester. I think you returned just before the pandemic. And that meant you had been away for this 35 years. You had been a music writer. You had, you had broken a lot of exclusives. You had done a lot of magazine journalism in the US. But effectively, you had grown up in Manchester during the punk period. And now you were back. And I think my first big question to you is how did Manchester seem to you when you got here how did you feel what were the bits of it you went to have a look around at tell us about Manchester today through the eyes of someone who grew up here but then was away for so long well you know I mean you gotta understand how Manchester used to be first right I mean the Manchester I grew up in was like a freaking wasteland right I mean basically they basically leveled everything 
right? They leveled. I mean, the the fear of the wrecking ball was a constant fear throughout my whole teenage years. And where where exactly did you grow up, Frank? T- tell the listeners about that. Uh, w- w- Wally Range. So ba- basically what was happening was this massive urban regeneration program that kind of began in Hume and was spreading out, right? And we were, our little terraced house where I grew up, Berry Avenue, we, that was next on the chopping block, funnily enough. They were going to knock down all these nice little terraced houses that we had. But it was such a disaster, the whole thing, that basically they stopped after a while. And what they did, which was a much smarter thing, was, was they gave money, grants, to the residents to do up the houses, you know, because you know the, the house I grew up in was damp. It was like, I mean, I mean, a lot of places, you know, when I was a kid, they didn't have indoor plumbing. People still went to the toilet in outside privies. Everybody had air raid shelters in the back garden. You were growing up in the late sixties, seventies. Seventies, yeah, as well sixties. So, so sixties and seventies is when I grew up in Manchester, and it was still like World War Two had never freaking ended. There were still like bomb sites. We used to play in bomb sites, right? But on the other hand, what was amazing about that period was freedom, yeah. right? But we never had our parents telling us. We just went out and did whatever the hell we liked. And what did your parents do, Frank, to portray your family a bit? My mum, very typical working class family. My mum, you know, she cleaned hospital floors, uh, waited tables. My dad worked in Kellogg's. He printed uh, Kellogg's cornflake boxes. So we were very, like, working class family in the time when there was, like, a working class, right? But we were I never thought of us as, as poor because we always seemed to have money for clothes. Yeah, it was only when I went to grammar school that I realized actually we were poor. I mean, we would like, for instance, like people people laugh when I tell them these stories. Like there used to be this thing called the club man, right? So you would go to a, a store in town. Like it was like an early form of credit, right? Before credit cards, and you would buy the clothes, or you would get the clothes from from the club, from the store, and the club man would come around on his bike every week for the money, right? Right, and so if you didn't have the money, you would hide under the dining room table <laughs> until he went away. <laughs> and we had we had like um, like like gas meters, you know, or like you know, like you'd put in like coins. In, in a meter to get gas, you know, and people, you know, crazy stuff like that. I mean, it was like we lived on, I mean, the food was disgusting. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about Manchester now is the food. I just can't believe how good the food is compared to how it used to be because the food was, I mean, I don't think I ate until I went to university. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Frank, and Frank, you were um, taken into the music scene and the music scene was massively important for you and it was a, a fascinating sort of formative time for Manchester's music scene, the next kind of revolution. And out of that came some of Manchester's most iconic export, music exports. You talk a bit about how those bands were formed in that era, those sort of diamonds that came out of the rough. How did you, Frank, first come to music? How did your love of music develop in that era? I mean, Manchester was like a musical crossroads in that in that period, right? It was like, on one hand, you had the whole glam rock thing, which is immensely important in terms of punk. You talk to any punks, you know, whether it's Johnny Rotten or Steve Jones or, you know, or, or Joy Division or anybody, basically. The influence of Bowie and Roxy cannot be 
overestimated, right? Basically, the punk scene grew out of the Bowie and Roxy scene. At the same time, you also had a soul scene, like Northern Soul, which was very, like up-tempo black dance music was very, very, very popular in Manchester. The third ingredient, and this is what kind of, which was, um, which I discovered was, um, I remember I was, I was, I used to have to change buses in Moss Side to get to my school, Severian College, and there used to be like a, this reggae store, and a guy with his massive wooden homemade speakers blasted out this really bass-heavy music. And I remember one day going in and just asking the guy what it was, and he was he was amazed. So, you know, he kind of took me a bit under his wing and he told me about what it was. It was King Tubby meets the Upsetters. Up time, it was basically Dob. So there was a huge... Dob became a huge influence, I think, in, in Manchester, especially on the post-punk era the, the that ex, that kind of experimenting with sonic space and what about what what about yourself frank T- tell us that you you were in a band yourself you you were going to a lot of um, really interesting gigs T- t- tell us about your own experience Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't it didn't last that long, but yeah, it was Manicure Noise. It was very much a... a, a it, the, the, the name came from Linda Sterling, who used to design Buzz, Buzzcocks posters. It was from the poster they had. Uh, it was called Manicured Noise and Cosmetic Metal Music, so we stole the thing Manicured Noise. It was very much like a, a product of the time. I mean, it was... Impossibly pretentious, but but it it was kind of that period was pretentious, but it was kind of like good pretentious. It was like kids trying to discuss. You know, one of the things I remember very much about that period is like reading it wasn't just music; it was reading. It was like Tony Wilson uh, turned me on to Guy Debord's The Society of the Spectacle. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but he, he was a it's a famous situationist international book. Uh, basically, post-Marxist French theory, right? And so, from and from Guy Debord, because of that, I discovered a uh, Roland Barthes, a uh, Jean Baudrillard, and uh, Michel Foucault, and uh, Jacques Derrida. So, by the time I got to um, university, when I, when I was eighteen, nineteen, I knew more about post-structuralist French theory than my professors did, and that was thanks in part to Tony Wilson. You know, and I mean, he was very much important in terms of bringing that kind of intellectual seriousness to the music. And I think that's what kind of distinguished Manchester from the rest of the country in a lot of ways was was an intellectual seriousness that you could be pretentious and not be made fun of. You could do kind of, you know, interesting things out of the mainstream, and that was encouraged. And a lot of that had to do, I think, with, 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 with Wilson. You know, we, we remember all the, unu- the the interesting bands that came out of Manchester, The Fall. The Fall, to me, were the quintessential punk band. I don't know why anybody calls them a post-punk band. But, you know, The Fall, Joy Division, Buzzcocks, Magazine, you know. But also there was, like, a lot of, like, workaday punk bands as well, like your Slaughter and the Dogs, your Drones. So, yeah, there was that. It wasn't all arty, Manchester. There was that kind of you know, uh, just three-chord punk rock that existed. How did traditional working-class Manchester interact with these young kids 
Oh, hating it, hating it, hating it, fucking hated punks. They fucking love punks. I mean, because I mean, the whole idea that punk was the the the, the music of the streets was complete nonsense. Punk was the music of aspiring upper working class kids. If you look at you look at like like it's the kids who were were maybe did well enough in A levels to go to college, but they did well enough they could go to art school, you know. And, and you know, and you're talking about like bricks being thrown at some gigs outside, and you're talking about running the gauntlet to get to the station. You've written about these things for the mail. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, I remember once. We, yeah, I, I didn't go into it in a lot of detail in the mill, but you know, those those Perry boys who attacked me. I remember afterwards, I saw them at, at Virgin Records. Virgin, there used to be Virgin Records just off Piccadilly um, bus station where everybody used to hang out, and so I was like, you know, I, I went up to them. I said, I know what you did because I did like a huge big scar down the side of my head. And I said, it's ridiculous that we're fighting. We're both working class kids. You know, we should be united, not fighting each other in the street. And they turned around and looked at me. And they all had these, like, Videl Sassoon bobs, you know, one eye peeking out from underneath his bob. He looked at me. He said, we're nothing like you. <laughs> and that was very much it. I mean, it was like there was, you know, the way that the punk now has become almost as traditional as, you know, afternoon tea. You know, it was not like that then. It was everybody hated punks and they particularly hated punks. I mean, it was bad enough before God Save the Queen. Right. But after God Save the Queen, you really were taking your life in your hands. But by that point, there was a shift. You know, you, you, there was a definite shift. Like, in those days, the styles changed very, very fast, much faster than they did today. In 77, it was all spiky hair and bondage gear and, and safety pins. 78, it was all D-mob suits and a severe hair, you know, kind of like that kind of Joy Division look, you know. So by by 78, that punk look was... People forget about punk, there's is that punk lasted 18 months, right? That's what, that's how long punk lasted. It was dead after 18 months. It only became influential in retrospect. At the time, even the people who were involved in it never thought it would be as influential as it subsequently become. It was just something to do, you know. Nobody thought that 50 years later, people will be looking back on this like it was some frigging golden age, you know. No, Nobody in the scene thought that. You know, and so it was. It was. It was basically something to do, and then it was over, and then we were on to something else. And and um, Frank, you take us in your piece that you've written for the Mill through your kind of journey from uh, Hume through to Copyhurst to some of those iconic venues like uh, Little Peter Street and Electric Circus and uh, the Russell Club, which of course kind of was the, the foundation for Factory Records. Going back there to those areas. What did you find? Well, I mean, you know, people talk about the changes in Manchester. They talk about, like, uh, Media City, for instance. So they talk about the skyscrapers downtown, the southern end of Deesgate. To me, the most extraordinary transformation was Hume. I mean, I literally, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Hume. I used to study at the library there. I used to hang out with people in the Crescents. And I used to go to the factory all the time. I, I could not recognise the place. I mean, it was completely... I mean, I literally had to look, check on Google Maps to see where I was. And it was only because of that bridge and, and also the library still there that I could kind of orientate myself. But 
what happened to Hume is just extraordinary. And I think it's a good thing. I'm not one of these people who is like, oh, it was much better in the old days. The, the Crescents were horrible. They were disgusting. They were vile, right? So these new, like, I mean, they, they were, there was ug ugly as shit, you know? I mean, you know, the irony of it is, I mean, Kevin Cummins says this when he when he when people from outside of England when they look at pictures of Joy Division in Hume, they say, "Oh, you must have taken that in Eastern Europe, right?" Because it looks like like Soviet Eastern Europe, you know. I mean, that's how it looked. It was so frigging depressing. So what they've done to it? These like you know the 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 um, the, the, the low rise housing. Everybody has gardens. Lots of open spaces now where kids can play. I'm all for that. I, I think that's amazing what they've done. And yet at the same time, they've still kept it. I mean, they have their own little art scene as well in Hume as well. I mean, it's not like, it's not just all like fucking students and stuff like that. Right? It, they have they have their own like little northern quarter there. So they have kept some of that old bohemian flavor to it. But I certainly would not mythologize or romanticize the Hume Crescents. The Hume Crescents were Awful. I mean, they were just an architectural atrocity, and and you know, and everybody who lived there was really, really depressed. You know, and, and what do you make of the fact that there used to be? I think when you were growing up, probably like the number of people living in a city centre was very low, maybe in the hundreds, the low, the low thousands. Now there are tens of thousands of people living in Manchester city centre. How, how does that strike you when you walk around? How does that make you feel? Like, well, how, what do you make of that change, I suppose? I think, I think it's great. I think people should live in the city centre. I mean, as I said in the story, I mean, in, in, in um, when, I, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, you know there was hardly anything there except for the occasional all-night cafe that looks as lonely as an Edward Hopper painting. So, you know, um, so, and, and it also, what was weird was they, in those days, they had those sodium, yellow sodium street lights, lamps, so everything had this sickly yellow glow to it, you know. Uh, and also, the thing is, people, what people forget as well, I remember this distinctly as a kid, and this was more in the 60s, was the buildings blackened with salt. I mean, honestly, I mean, it really was, talk, talk about dark satanic mills. They literally were black with salt. And it was only after the Clean Air Act came in later in the 60s and they started to scrub all, all the shit off the buildings. But and that's one of my first memories. My, my very first memory of Manchester as a kid is taking a bath, in a tin bath, in front of a fire, while my mum would like, which we'd heat up a big kettle, big, uh, big iron kettle, and she would pour stuff into it. And then, then my, my, uh, my dad would get in, my mum would get in, and my sister and I would get in. And by the time we get in, it'd be black, right? So that it was that whole early period. It really seems to me like, like it was, if, if, I, I, it was like it was something from the nineteenth century. And, and 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 Frank, you, you talk about that that you know sort of from from that grew um, those those great bands and that innovative pop culture, not just bands, but, but popular culture um, and art at large. And you, you talk about the fact that you know the last sort of uh, big Manchester group that that um, that created a stir on the world stage were Oasis. And there's a bit of a sense, isn't there? There's an argument that Manchester sold its soul to property developers. Is that is that something that you? 
have any time for, an argument that you have any time for? No, I mean, I think it's true, but on the other hand, it's like you've got to make a choice, right? It's like, do you want, like, I mean, I mean, do you want a place where kids can grow up and and be safe and families can, you know, not worry about crime and the living conditions are good? Or do you want, like, some hellhole that breeds great art, right? Now, I prefer the hellhole that breeds, breeds great art, but I... But I perfectly understand why people want the other option, right? Because it, it's 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 and it, this is not unique to Manchester. This happened to the East Village, right? Which I loved the East Village. I mean, when I moved to the East Village in the late eighties, I thought I would never leave the East Village. I mean, it's like you'd walk down the street and you'd see Paddy Smith or you'd see Lou Reed or you'd see, you know, they, I mean, this is when Keith Haring was still around, and you know, there were so many great artists and writers and musicians and whatever. But you know what? It's the artists and the writers and the musicians who plant the seed of their own destruction because because they're the ones who start the gentrification process going. They're the, they're kind of like the shock troops of gentrification, you know. So in a way, it's almost kind of inevitable, you know. Once 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 you know artists t- turn you know the, the, these these hollowed out hell holes into attractive places to live then that attracts other people who are not necessarily artists and then they start to develop things you know and and so yeah i mean you could it's 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 no coincidence that at the by the end of his life you know but when i met tony wilson he was talking about the situation this international by the end of his life he was you know he was essentially a property developer you know um, so there is definitely a link there. They're not opposed to each other, right? One leads to the other, you know? My my final question, our final question, Frank, is perhaps a, a little bit self-aggrandizing, but I wanted to ask you why you wanted to write for The Mill, because you've written a couple of brilliant long reads for us. They've gone down really well. You've obviously been in America where you've been writing for some quite sort of prestigious magazines that really care about how much time you spend on a story, fact-checking a story, breaking big exclusives, doing proper photos and that kind of thing. And and clearly we don't have a lot of that kind of journalism in the UK. So I, I sort of wondered how you, how you ended up getting in touch and, and what you make of the media landscape that you kind of come back to here. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. Like, um, after I um, first moved to um, America, I remember the first piece I ever did for the Village Voice, it was just a, a music review. It was about Queen Latifah. And we were, those were the days when you would sit with your editor at the computer terminal. And, yeah. and then we'd finished it. And he says, okay, okay, we finished. All that's left now is the fact checking. And I said, what's fact checking? <laughs> So, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, come on, British journalism is the worst. It's, I mean, it's just, I mean, I can't believe the crap we used to do when I was a kid, like, oh, Melody Maker. I mean, they just, people just make stuff up and lie. And, I mean, I just, I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible British journalism, just generally speaking. And there's very, very little, A, there's very little investigative journalism, and B, there's hardly, I can't think of anybody that does long-form investigative journalism that's also literary. You know what I mean? It's either, you either do... 
um, you know, say like the Sunday Times might run some inter an interesting, you know, long form piece about some political corruption, but it's rarely literary style. You know what I mean? So yeah, th th there isn't that tradition here, like there is in in America of long form literary journalism, where you can really delve deep into a topic. I mean, I don't even like the term investigative reporting. I think it's just like just like really thorough reporting. You know what I mean? And there's just not the space to do that here, right, in, in this country, because it's expensive, you know, to do investigative journalism. And so anyway, you know, I was just casting around, thinking, you know, if I'm going to be staying in Manchester, I should actually do some Manchester stories, right? And I'm thinking, well, who can I write for? I mean, I, I mean, I, well, I shouldn't say this. I'm not going to slag off on the newspapers, but the, the the fact of the matter is, there's there's just not a lot out there, nothing I could find where they were doing kind of long form literary journalism until I came across the Manchester Mill, you know, and, and you know, you know, you know, I mean, it, it, one of the things that turned me onto the mill was that Sophie, she, what was that piece she wrote about that garden in Salford? Remember that bit? Well, I couldn't give a shit about that, right? Like, I mean, what do I care about fucking gardening, right? I don't give a shit about that. But the writing was so good that it really drew me into the story. That, to me, is the sign of good journalism. I don't give a shit about the topic, but I, but the writing makes me care about the topic because the writing is so good. Yeah, yeah, quite. That's brilliant. Um, uh, here, here. Uh, Frank, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, my friend. Your piece is uh, brilliant and really insightful and informative and your reflections um, coming back to Manchester 35 years on have been uh, really eye-opening, I think. Uh, Frank, thank you for being with us on the podcast this week. Okay, great. Thank you. Just hit subscribe to the Manchester Weekly. Uh, we'll land in your podcast feed every Thursday and every Sunday. And don't forget to subscribe to The Mill's brilliant journalism as well. More of this stuff direct to your inbox. Manchestermill.co.uk.